You're listening to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. We're covering muscles, of course, all kinds of movement, recovery, and fitness. I'm your host, Julie Reed. I'll bring information you can trust from new-to-you sources. Today, I'm chatting again with Lee Dawson. Lee has eight years of experience in adaptive strength and conditioning and has been running her own post-rehabilitation cancer program for three years. While she also trains general fitness clients, Lee spends most of her time working with adaptive clients. She is certified by the STAR program in oncology rehabilitation and has a BS in exercise science along with a BA in political philosophy. Lee has also developed active meditation and mindfulness techniques that are adaptable and scalable and enjoys making connections with other practitioners to create a more holistic treatment for her clients. You can find Lee on Instagram at Lee Dawson. We are back with Lee Dawson for a second round so that she can go in depth on one of her clients in her adaptive fitness program. I asked Lee back because last week we got a great high level view of adaptive fitness and how it fits into the general fitness population, but I really wanted to go and do a deep dive into her clients. So welcome Lee. Why don't you tell me how one of your clients found you and we'll get going into their program shortly. Okay, great. I just wanted to address, first of all, that I have permission from this client and a couple others that I might use bits and pieces as an example for to talk about them today. I always think it's really important that everyone, but especially people that have had lost a lot of control of their body through medical procedures and having people talk about them all the time, that they really have ownership on how their experience is used. And that includes me talking about it, even if they're not identified. So this particular gentleman was 42 years old when I started working with him. He had suffered from an AVM, which is an arteriovenous malformation, just kind of a a clump of blood vessels in the brain that don't form properly that had bled. And so he had a, you know, cardiovascular event where he ended up in the hospital. And then while he was in the hospital recovering, he had a stroke. He found our program through a referral from this rehabilitation hospital that he had spent about a year in, in a combination of inpatient and outpatient. We have a lot of referrals from that particular hospital, but also his, he used to live in the apartment building right across the street from where our facility is located. And he said he had never given it sort of a second thought. And then when they recommended it to him and he told me the address, he's like, yeah, I actually was pulled out on a stretcher right in front of that building. So I know exactly where it is. So he's ironically enjoyed the coming full circle of doing his rehab at the same place that the event happened. And that's how we started working together. What is the first session like with a client who you have no idea where they're coming from and what their abilities are? Yeah, that's, it's, it's really sort of the most difficult thing to wrap your head around initially is coming in with someone who's had you know significant medical event significant physical effects of that medical event and knowing where to start. Um, We talked a little bit the last session about how the one really great part is these people actually come in with way more information and way more understanding of what's going on in their body than probably most of your general fitness clients do because they've had had everything investigated completely and and they know their history and they're going to come in with a lot of information. So just from a from a standpoint of feeling comfortable with working with clients that have these issues, you're actually going to start off on a more solid footing in terms of understanding than most people. I have pretty thorough intake forms that I try and get to people ahead of time. One, as a, as a time-saving measure, but two, it's again, it's one of those things that people have filled out so many forms and talked about themselves so much that if they can kind of do that ahead of time and not have to sit and recite a lot of it in detail with me, that's helpful. But if not, we're still going to talk about stuff Um, and they can fill out the forms when they get there. I always usually ask them to bring, if they have them, their rehab exercises. Most people that have done physical therapy or are still in physical therapy have that typical sheet of things they're supposed to be doing at home, whether they are or whether they're not. is a side issue. But that tells me exactly what that person can already do. I'm still going to want to take a look at it and see the quality of it um, and see the progressions of it. But know that most people are going to come in with a list of things they're already able to do and you're able to build a progression off of that. So again, just in terms of building people's comfort, these are not generally clients that are going to come in and you're not going to have any idea of what they're able to do. And then I ask a lot of questions, but not necessarily in-depth the medical ones. That, you know, that comes with all the intake forms and all the things that they've recited a million times. But mostly what I want to know is what are their particular quality of life issues? I think when you're working with any kind of client with a disability or not, a lot of what you want to know is what are the things that are limiting in their life? What brought them in? What are the things that they want to improve? What are the things that they feel like they can get better at immediately? 
One, because I want to build a program based on what they want and need, whether it looks like what they think it's going to look like or not is different, but in terms of their goals. The other thing is it also actually tells you a lot about their abilities to know the one thing in their life that's really limiting them. You can actually glean a lot about what's going on with their body. If it's, if it sounds like it's a lot of balance and stability stuff, if it sounds like it's a matter of fatigue and endurance, having someone describe the limitations they feel like they have in their life actually can give you a lot of really good information about their body. And also just those particular limiting factors. I've had a lot of examples of a client who will say things like, you know, every time I reach for this thing, I end up slumping in my chair for the rest of the day. And it's a matter of building mindfulness about that one thing is that thing is the one that's causing their issues in the day long. And you can work on immediately having a benefit on other things after that. The second thing I talk about is screening. Um, We talked about it a little online afterwards when I listened to Maria Bassetta's podcast we talked about having an appreciation for screens and all they can offer, but knowing that most of them in their form don't really give you all the information you're looking for. So taking the protocol of screens, the information you can get from them, but sort of tailoring the things that are going to give you the information about that particular client. Also, the fact that anything with a score can be immediately defeating for people. (laughs) So... When you have someone coming in who's already been told exactly what their limitations are and what they're not capable of, going into a really detailed screen can just feel like another procedure pointing out their fault. So a lot of what I will start with is those PT exercises that we talked about. Pardon me, I need a little bit of water. A lot of the PT exercises will be very familiar. If you've had a client that's had a knee injury or an ankle injury or um, anything else that they're coming to you from, you're going to see some of the classic things like bridges and straight leg raises and postural exercises. And those are the kinds of things that have carryover from screens and to how I can evaluate clients in a way that I already know that they're fairly comfortable. Part of it was working with a client with, well, really working with any client, but it's amplified with a client with a disability is that element of fear of coming into a new space. So if you can start your screen with things that you know that they can be successful at, even if you're not sure what the quality will be, you're going to get much better information than asking them to do a totally new task where it kind of like overloads their system. If you've ever tried a new exercise yourself, maybe something single leg, something that requires a lot of focus and balance, it's going to be ugly and tense until you can even wrap your head around what you're trying to do. Watching them do a bridge and seeing if, you know, the hips are lifting relatively level together. Um, a straight leg raise to see some pelvic stability and some range of motion sitting in a nice straight posture. So this is all still talking mostly about that client that I was working with. I just found that he's a really good example for some general issues that happen with any kind of brain cardiovascular event. If they can sit up high and reach their arm out at the same time, uh, grip strength, even if it's just squeezing a pool noodle, can they get activation from both sides, abduction, adduction, Then you can really get into things like sit and stand, that they can do it with or without assistance, balance standing with or without assistance, and really just progress gradually with stuff that the client can be successful with. If you have a good rapport with them and and you can reinforce to them that they're supposed to be bad at some of the stuff and that's why they're there, they're there to work on things and get better, you can push the boundaries a little bit to try some other stuff and see what their movement's like. But for the most part, If you can hit those basic PT exercises, you can already build a progression from there because most of them will look like the things that you'll do for activation with a general fitness client before a fitness program anyway. This particular client had pretty classic sort of stroke or certain kinds of traumatic brain injury symptoms where he has a single side that's more affected. He has use of his arm and leg on the right side but it is more limited. Movements are very deliberate, but they're not very smooth. So one of the things that I found was, and I found with a lot of clients, is some gentle soft tissue work does wonders for mobility initially. If you think of clients that might have a shoulder mobility issue, that a little bit of sticker foam rolling on the lat, a little up into the shoulder girdle, And that can kind of at least temporarily clear up a lot of stuff. I find that especially with someone with any kind of brain injury that so much effort goes into balance and stabilizing that a lot of times there's actually an overactivity of some of those stabilizing muscles and that's what's limiting the mobility. So with this particular client, what I found 
was he had really good act- activation in controlled scenarios. So those, those basic PT things, like he could get a bridge to go, he could reach his arm out, he could squeeze a pool noodle, but the more complex the movements got, the less motor control he had, especially if balance was involved. Um, so the biggest thing I got from that screen was that loading up really complex movements was not going to be the way to go initially and sticking to nice, simple ones where we remove a lot of the variables and are able to focus on just building strength and endurance. We talked a lot about in the first recording about how just generally strength and conditioning helps with everything else. So even before you start going, okay, this stuff that doesn't work well, we want it to get work better. A lot of it is let's get the stuff that works pretty well to work even better than that so that you have a good base of support and conditioning for the things you want to add on top of it. It's really tempting to kind of come out of your lane when you're working with people with disabilities and think of yourself as a physical therapist. It's really important to be in the mindset of being a strength and conditioning coach. You can refer out for therapy. (laughs) You know, a lot of these clients will be doing therapy in conjunction with their training with you. And if they're not, they can go back for more PT for other issues that arise. But it's really important to not just jump into like, I'm going to fix this arm. When that's one, not your job. (laughs) And two, it's probably not even the way to have the biggest impact on that person right from the beginning. So you've laid a really great foundation of where to start. Now, how do you progress somebody through the program? To use this particular client as an example, what I looked at was if his movements were limited when he was in conditions where he felt unstable and a little less safe, that the best way to build strength and conditioning first was to put him in scenarios that were nice and controlled and where he felt supported. Some of that's physical. Just again, we talked about just better strength and conditioning helps everything. Part of it is psychological, setting the client up for success. So, you know, things that you might not go into with a general fitness client because you're like, well, they can do cardio on their own. They can do, and you might absolutely be right, might not be the same way to go with this client. So for him, I know he wanted to build his fitness and a feeling of safety. I knew that building his fine motor skills later were going to be really dependent on leverage and stability from the bigger muscle groups and bigger joints of his body. So we started working on some cardiovascular fitness with a focus on range of motion and mobility. So as opposed to, you know, getting on the rower and seeing how many strokes per minute and how much distance he could get, what we would focus on is letting his arms out all the way, pulling them all the way in and sitting up with a nice straight posture. So he could build that endurance as well as that base of stability at the same time. You know, doing work in some new positions, but controlled for safety. And on the rower, I would have him sit in a chair so that he could focus on just the upper body stuff at one time, just the lower body stuff at one time. Um, the example I'll use on why this, this stuff is useful is, you know, you've worked a lot with kettlebells. Do you ever have one of those days where your swings just feel kind of all over the place and you're not, each one feels a little different, you don't get a lot of consistency, and then you realize that, like, you were looking all over the place. <laughs> For <Like> sure, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, my first thought, if my swings feel ugly that day, is like, where was I looking? And turns out most of the time it means I was looking all over the place. So that vestibular system that's processing all of that information was just taking in way too much information. So trying to figure out what to do with your butt and your hands and your lats at the same time that you're seeing books on a bookshelf and somebody walking by. And the idea of finding a visual point has nothing to do with where your eyes need to be. It has to do with like not processing a bunch of information you don't need to process right then. You know, just limit those variables. For someone with a balance issue or a control issue, it's very tempting to be like, oh, he needs to be walking better, so he needs to walk more. He needs to be using his arm better, so he needs to do a lot of like skills to work the arm. And really what you need to do is just break it down to one simple thing at a time. From the other end, for a lower body, we have machines called a new step, which if you're in a, in a sort of big modern fitness facility, you might have, but they're really expensive. They cost seven or $8,000 each. We only have them because of grants. But they're basically like a recumbent stepper. There's a nice big comfy seat that you can transfer into from all kinds of angles. You can strap legs in with bars so that they stay straight. You can um, give some assistance on grip on the handles so the arms can move in and out. I really like that to be able to work on hip range of motion, um, getting full extension, but in a way that someone is supported and doesn't have to balance themselves. So again, you get to work on the brute strength, taking out all that extra vestibular information so that by the time you start working on that instability, there's a nice solid base. A lot of people are released from physical therapy when they stop making progress 
as opposed to, you know, when they've actually reached a certain level of achievement. So if you were in an inpatient physical therapy program and you've been working on walking and you've gotten one lap of the hallway for the last two weeks, they're going to go, hey, well, you know, that's it. We got to let them go. And this is no fault of the, this is no fault of the physical therapist. Right. Um, they would love to keep them for as long as possible. But in terms of billing, it's sort of like, is this doing anything for them? And so I tell my clients that are really concerned about having less physical therapy, I'm like, don't worry, we're going to mess something new up and you're going to get to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Because I mean that in the nicest way possible, but like, we're going to get a deeper range of motion. We're going to get your endurance up. We're going to get you walking so much your knee hurts. And then you're going to get to go back and and like earn your gait training. You know, you have to, you have to basically have pain (laughs) in order to earn your physical therapy. But sometimes it's like, well, if we can build up your endurance to the point where you can do enough to have pain again, then you get to go back to physical therapy, which is really screwed up. And I I wish it wasn't that way. But I always tell clients, like, we're going to get you going so much that you get to go back to physical therapy and work with a professional who works in gait training or who works in fine motor skills and hands or works with something like that, too. So part of what I'm doing is actually earning people more physical therapy by building up their endurance in such a way that they can show progress in physical therapy. So if you want to know how screwed up our medical system is in the United <laughs> States, I, in, a, in a small way, take it upon myself to break people so that they can get better care. Um, <laughs> so, so, so starting with those two things that, that, you know, finding activities that people can do to work their endurance, but that set them up for safety and stability so that they can, um, you know, work longer and harder than they're used to is a big part of where I started with him and where I sat with a lot of my clients. Not all of them are going to be doing those particular exercises, but finding something that you can do, you know, with a good amount of repetitions to get somebody some good fatigue, to build up their endurance is the most important place to start rather than starting with fixing broken stuff. You got to assume conditioning first in whatever safe way you can. And actually the skills on top of that will come later. Just sort of like if you were doing basic barbell training, you're not going to start with like a new deadlift variation every week. Like, you know, you're going to start with the basics, really nail them down, and then use those variables to build on those basics after that. Something that you said that stood out to me is you were talking about getting your client to the ERG, and you were working on positions that built endurance. And for whatever reason, it was the discussion of working and attempting to row that really solidified your goal of strength and conditioning. Your role is 100% working on getting stronger and better conditioned versus fixing the client. The fixing the client is the is a physical therapist's job. And you could say that 100 times, but it was that specific thing when you were talking about it that really sunk in for me. Good. That's great. Because I really think that's the big kind of limiting factor in working with these kinds of populations is one, for the sake of like the best possible care and growth for your client, but also to take some of the pressure off yourself as a coach. I mean, I think a lot of people, their hesitation to take on clients with a lot of limitations, oh, I don't know what to do with that. I'm like, you're not supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's it's a a scaled version of the same kinds of imbalances that you work every day with clients and the same we have the same conversations with general fitness clients all the time that have an injury history of uh, wanting to be perfectly balanced side to side I mean I've torn my ACL twice on one side of my body never on the other and I've never had the ACL repaired so why would I expect like my single leg deadlifts to feel exactly the same side Mm -hmm. to side so I you know I've come to those conclusions a long time ago where yeah I want to you know I want to stay at my 60 40 imbalance and not have it get worse but I'm not going to be 50-50 ever because the compensations I've built are really useful. That's what keeps me from not feeling pain every day. The attempt to fix things is not only misguided in that it's just not your job, but two, it's just not feasible for everybody to be totally even. So focusing on that person moving as well as they can within whatever limitations they have is going to be like infinitely more valuable than you know, ramming your head against something where you're going to have a little bit of an effect. Talking about the imbalances side to side. So when I added the strength element into the program, 
you know, beyond those good movement patterns with the cardiovascular stuff. A lot of it's very similar to most of your general fitness clients that you would train. Lots of posterior chain. You know, what I tell people is, is someone that's sedentary because of disability is going to have a lot of the same weakness and tightness issues that someone that spends 10 hours a day at a desk job. So there's going to be lots of posterior chain with a relatively balanced load. So especially when you have a person who has a single side affected injury, where they might not be able to hold a heavy load with one of their hands, they might not be able to keep the, the load really balanced. You don't have to worry about always having a balanced load, but you also don't want to like completely reinforce the imbalance all the time. So it's good to work on things where they're holding heavier things with their stronger side because that's what they're going to do in their life. That's the side they're going to carry groceries with. That's the side they're going to pull themselves up with. There's nothing wrong with stabilizing an imbalance with a load. But you don't necessarily want to do all your work with an uneven load all the time because, again, that, you know, that 60-40 imbalance can become a 75-25 real quick and then you're going to have more issues. So things like bands that you can hook around people's hips for loads for hinging patterns are really helpful. Anything that doesn't have to be gripped. I have a, like a, a million hinging and deadlift variations <laughs> for whatever kind of load the client's able to bear and whatever kind of balance they can create. You know, hip thrusters with shoulders on the table are really great. It's really easy to load the hips evenly that way. Even deadlift variations where they're sort of holding a bar and you're banded from behind. There's a lot of good ways to add a load that don't reinforces balances. With this particular client, because he has grip, he has grip on his right side, but a lot of times, you, can, you, know, you know, grip is a really good shoulder stabilizer. But sometimes there's a, you know, a, a neurological difference between being able to stabilize and mobilize at the same time. So you'll find that with general fitness clients too, where they can really lock into a good solid position, but the moment you move the arms, that stability is lost. So for him, we want to work on that skill, but I also really just want to get his lat stronger. I want to get his mid-back stronger. I'm going to get his posture better because all of that's going to help him walk and sit and stand and take care of himself better. So we can do things where we strap a band on the wrist, take the grip out of it, and really get some good, strong muscle building in the upper and mid-back without having to focus on that grip and extension at the same time. Same idea of sort of taking variables out, building some brute strength. And then when we go to work on that extension with the grip, there's a really good base of strength and activation that's already there. So again, get away from fixing and making everything look exactly how you want and just go, you know, everybody can benefit from stronger lats. Everybody can benefit from stronger glutes. Those are pretty much the baseline of sedentary American life is if you can get glutes and lats doing work, that helps just about everything. And then when we do things, work things like grip and range of motion, we do it relatively deloaded. One of my favorite tools to use for, you know, reaching and grabbing and moving objects is an Indian club. You can get a one or one and a half pound Indian club and it's a really kind of a weird load, but easy to hold where the weight's at the far end. So kind of like every, not everything you pick up is going to be a nice little dense, like a three pound free weight's going to be. So using something like a, a screwdriver or a small hammer or an Indian club, even things like bean bags that are a little soft, you have to grab any variations you can add to that. So then you are processing that good information, but not in a way that forces you to, you know, use your whole body to hold it up and do all of that stuff at the same time. So being able to reach and rotate and place things to the side in a way that uses all that good strength that you built, but doesn't put any kind of safety risk. So I've talked a lot about safety and most of that is not because, oh no, if this delicate disabled person lifts more than five pounds, they're going to get broken. It's really just cutting out those variables from your brain, where if your brain's thinking, oh God, don't drop this on your foot, you're getting totally different activation than if you're thinking like, okay, you're just reaching for a glass and you're grabbing a glass of water. But it's taking out that, that processing as opposed to being particularly delicate with these clients. We talked about the last recording that most of these people have been rolled and lifted and pressed and poked and prodded, but have a pretty good sense of what they're comfortable doing and what they're not doing, they will let you know. I have a running joke with clients. They will work on something. I'm like, right, but like you signed your liability waiver. Like, <laughs> this is your decision. I'm like, I'm not at fault. You can try it. I will keep you safe. But like just, you know, and it's a running joke of like, you have control of your body at all times. You can make these decisions. 
I don't have to agree with all of them, but as long as I feel like we can do it safely, you are welcome to try it. Another one from very specifically, because we talked about grit, we talked about, I really like for this particular client, lots of single side adduction exercises. A lot of clients, if they have a single side imbalance, will have a pretty big foot turnout on the affected side for balance, which is not, I mean, it's a really good adaptation. If you are feeling unstable, you want to create a wider base. The risk for that in the long run is that you get a really tight glute, a really weak adductor, and that compensation becomes exaggerated. So a sneaky little thing that not everybody thinks of because they want just kind of straight activation is adductors are great for adding hip stability for anybody that feels imbalanced. And there's really infinite variations using bands that you can do to get that good activation. So for him, that's something that we always spend a couple minutes every day on is really focused on that particular spot. You know, find those weak, weak links through movement. See if you can teach the brain and the body to get as much help as they can from the body and not just focus on the big stuff. And that can have a lot of carryover too. So what is something that you've tried that has not gone well and what did you do to correct it? Kind of a joke, but kind of not. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like everybody's so different. Everybody's brain is so different. I'm like, we're just trying stuff. So that's always a big attitude to have and a good thing to communicate with clients is like, especially when you get past the point of the basic stuff and you're trying to try things that are a little more complex, being able to say like, hey, we're going to try stuff. I don't know if this is going to work, but let's see what happens. And I, you know, it's an educated plan. I feel fairly confident that they're going to do well. But the other conversation I have is like, if I only give you stuff you're already good at, we're not going to progress. Because a lot of it is, and it happens with every kind of client, is there are some people that are not going to take failure as well. So really keeping that channel of communication of like, if we don't every once in a while try something that you can't do, like we're really not experimenting enough with what you might be capable of doing. So this particular client, there's sort of a window after a brain injury of up to maybe give or take about two years where the brain injury can still heal and you can recover function. Um, you can gain function at any point through adaptations through, you know, brain plasticity, but there's about a two-year window where you can actually still heal some of the inflammation in the brain and you might get some stuff back. So part of my experimenting with this client is making sure that if he is gaining function, that we're loading it up and reinforcing it so he holds on to it. Because when you have a really long time of being dysfunctional, your brain has a way of just being like, oh yeah, that, we don't, we don't use that foot. Uh, that foot's not there. So as you gain feeling back, it's really important to keep repeatedly telling the brain like, no, no, that foot's working again. We need to give that some attention. And you can get a lot of what I refer to as baby deer syndrome, which I get from my own programming where I sort of mobilized some joints, lost some stability. And all of a sudden I sort of did that like baby deer right out of the womb. Like, I don't know where my legs are. I don't know where my feet are. So I have tried things like <laughs> one of the, one of the, the Really important things with working with clients is making sure they can get up off the floor if necessary, if there's a fall or something like that. So that's always a big moment for me is, is working with a client of like taking a knee and coming up or getting up from a low table or things like that. And those are the ones where if it goes poorly, you're going to have to put some, some muscle into helping them off the floor. But the, the benefits of being able to work on that are pretty great. But so the, the, the baby deer syndrome you can have something that you've worked on with a client repeatedly and they've made really big strides and then they can get terrible at it. I've had a lot of things. I, there's what I call positive regressions where you improve one thing so much that your body doesn't know how to do something else again and it leads to temporary dysfunction. There's also a lot of things that lead to pain. When you're regaining feeling, and this is a particular client, you know, we had a conversation, I talked about him on my Instagram stories the other day where he was super excited to have a lot of pain in his hand and his arm. Because when you first regain feeling anywhere, your body translates everything as pain. It's like, we didn't even know there was a hand there. So uh, it hurts. Yeah, we're just going to decide that it hurts. So part of what you have to be prepared for in working with clients that are still in that kind of plasticity phase is you might cause pain, you might cause more dysfunction, and being able to talk them through it and maybe regress back to some stuff that they can do well will help you sort of rebuild that motor patterning again. So instead of it being a straight line of progression, 
a lot of times it'll be like, let's go back to bridges. Let's go back to straight leg raises. Let's get some good information to your brain about how you can move after any kind of failure, especially. Hesitate to use the word failure, but if you've tried something and it hasn't worked, it's really important to then go back to some stuff that does work and rebuild that safety and positive feeling about being in the gym in the first place. Probably had it with a general fitness client. You know, you try a lift and just doesn't agree with someone or they've had no hip pain or back pain for weeks and then you try a new lift and all of a sudden it all reappears again. The important thing is not to then go, oh no, let's figure out a way to make this work. It's like, well, let's go back to the thing that did work. Let's get a couple of good reps on there and then we'll go back to the thing that didn't work as well um, and try and reinforce that again. And it was, that was a very vague answer of specific failures, but I, I don't think that I've ever tried anything with him where I was like, oh crap, that was a mistake. It's much more of, balancing expectations and and understanding that you're going to do stuff and it's not going to work. But if you're really focused on strength and conditioning being your ultimate goal, there's always things you can go back to, to still make that session positive. I try and always leave time at the end after I'm going to try something new to do some kind of finisher, which is not necessarily like you would think of it in terms of, oh, we're going to do tire flips or rope exercises but something that's going to be a really positive reinforcement of all the movement that we worked on that session to make sure that the person's leaving on that note of feeling like they worked hard and they worked well, and they're going to carry that good movement with them when they leave. One thing that I am pulling from the, the, what you just said is the idea that when you first regain feeling, your body processes it as pain. And I think as strength and conditioning coaches, this is really important because at least my, from my perspective, when I hear clients in pain, I, I say, stop doing that. Yeah. <laughs> like, you don't want to be in pain. But in this particular case, obviously you have to know the history of the situation. The idea isn't necessarily to stop, but to adjust and continue the limb that's in pain. It's as it's been described to me. Mm-hmm. So, it's, so, you know, I have a pretty deep breadth of experience, but I've still never gone through it myself, is it's kind of like if your arm falls asleep and if that feeling comes back really quickly, you get that pins and needles and sometimes it can, you know, it's not real comfy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, if you really like, if you have one of those things where you kind of throw your arm behind your head and fall asleep somewhere awkward and bring it down, it does, it does not feel comfy. And imagine that sort of all day. Mm-hmm. Um, your brain initially is like, you know, those nerve endings fired up and it hasn't gotten any information. It's like, what the hell? Uh, this has got to be bad. This is not what it felt like yesterday. So it doesn't feel like it did yesterday, then it's bad. But it's not necessarily a debilitating pain. It's just, it's, it's uncomfortable. It might make you feel like you're getting a little bit stiff. But the important part is, is to kind of experiment with it a little bit. Go, okay, well, but I'm moving better. Like I'm actually getting a sense of stuff and understanding that pain being different from other pain. So I do, do still totally agree that like if something really hurts, yes. it's like, you know, there, there's honestly, there's so many things we can do. You know, with a lot of clients, will, I, I, I always make sure that communication is open and talking about pain because they so want to accomplish things that they think if they say, well, I, this thing hurts, but I really want to be able to do it. Like, that's great, but we'll do it a different way. <laughs> there are so many ways for bodies to move safely. But if that thing hurts, like you, I, I, I joke with my clients, I'm like, if you ever run out of problems, I will give you some of mine, but we don't need to create them. Like, you know, because like, oh, well, it hurts when I do this. I'm like, yeah, but you, we did these seven other things, but it didn't hurt. So why are we worried about this one thing? So yeah, so sort of a running joke of like, we don't know. We don't need more problems. We've got plenty of stuff that works. I've got 17 other ways, limitations, breed creativity, but please always tell me when it hurts. If I think you're being a big baby and think you should keep trying, I will let you know, but I always want to know. I always want to know if it hurts and we can kind of talk through about what that pain feels like and see if it's something that's coming from a stiffness or from the fact that the movement's new. I mean, you know, when you do any movement, everybody's sort of like 200% stiffer than they need to be because they're trying to stay stable. Sometimes it's a matter of just kind of doing some breathing, relax into it, and actually stop trying so hard. And that can eliminate a lot of pain for someone with balance issues that's trying something new. So if progress is slow, how do you as a coach stay encouraged? And potentially, even more importantly, how do you help the client stay encouraged? Excellent question. And a lot of that varies client to client. A lot of the people, if they're 
in our program to begin with are very self-motivated, which is very helpful. They're, they're doing extra things. They're not doing the things that their doctor has said they had to. They're taking it upon themselves to know that they don't want to just uh, live. They want to thrive. They want to be able to do more things. But I do a lot of sort of referring back to where their abilities were when they first started because it is very slow. And we talk about it, you know, being a marathon, not a sprint. It's very easy to focus on where you want to be. And that's good. It's good to have goals. It's good to look forward. But you also have to look at the progress that you've already made. So maybe you're only 20% along the journey of where you want to be. But if you look back at where that person started weeks before or months before, and you can reflect on that progress, it's, you know, it's, it's moving grains of sand a little bit. But if you look back, you can see that that pile's gotten pretty big. So this particular client that I've been talking about you know, was in a wheelchair when he first came in because his, you know, balance and energy were such that it wasn't safe for him to be out moving around even with a cane. And then he progressed to a walker and then he progressed to a cane. The hard part, which is why this is a very good question, is like with anybody, with anybody starting a strength and conditioning program, the progress early on is really quick. You know, if anybody's had a sedentary lifestyle and they become active, they're going to feel a lot better. They're going to feel a lot stronger really quickly. It's when you hit that point where you're bumping against those limiting factors that it gets a lot slower. You know, so it's like, wow, great. I can exercise for an hour and I don't feel exhausted. That's fantastic. So being able to reflect back on the progress made and understanding that now you're building on that foundation and that the better you get, the harder it gets. You can use the same mentality as if you're working with athletes. Well, then athletes are the worst. I was a college athlete and I was the worst. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, but so a lot of the, and we talked about the, it's, it's instead of comparing people's disabilities to your general fitness clients, the better comparison is to an athlete in season. And you have to say like the better you get, the smaller the incremental improvements will be. You know, if you could, someone can jump from, you know, a hundred pound deadlift to a 200 pound deadlift in a couple of weeks from good technique. And then they're going to creep up two and a half pounds at a time for a long time. So the same thing goes with someone with a disability and there. And when you have big goals like athletes do and like, you know, human beings do in general, it is very easy to see that long distance ahead of you instead of all those things that you picked up. So I don't have um, a strategic right answer other than always reflecting on the progress that's already been made. And sometimes it's just, again, when you have somebody who's got so much on their plate, as we all do, but who's thinking about, you know, the, the fear of their health issues, the, the burden they might feel like on their family and the friends and all those other things going on, those little incremental progresses can really get lost. You know, it like happens with all of us. We, we see what we want to get, not what we've already done. So being able to look back and be like, hey, but we did, we used to do 10 minutes on this at level one, and now we do 20 minutes at variable levels, that's a huge amount of progress. But when you're just sitting your butt on a machine, you don't necessarily notice it all. I would say some, my, my programming is designed to be sort of like turning up the boiling water on a lobster. You're not supposed to know what's happening to you until it's too late. It's a really terrible analogy, but it works. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so sometimes I have to, like, in, in the moment in a program, I don't want that person to feel like they're like incredibly challenged all the time. But what I want them to be able to do is look back six weeks back and be able to say, hey, but actually we increased everything, you know, five or 10% every week. And now you've had this huge improvement, but you didn't feel awful. Like mm -hmm. you were still able to go home. And one of the things we talked about in the last recording was making sure that person has energy and the strength to do all the things they need to do the rest of the day. Long story, even longer. It's basically a little bit of constant reflection on that person's progress. And then also talking about how slow progress is a lot of, a lot of times a sign of the huge amount of progress you've already made. So again, you get from that 100-pound deadlift to that 200-pound deadlift. Congratulations, you're an athlete now. Everything gets more difficult to make progress after you've made those huge strides initially. Can you give us a timeline for how long you've been working with your client and where he is now? Um, sure. I've been working with him. It's, we're, we're pushing it a, almost two years. He has had some medical 
setbacks. I'm sorry. I, la- I laughed because we, he had a phase where we sort of joked he was, you know, like living the book of Job from the Bible where he was just being thrown these really weird challenges. But he got a spider bite that got infected and it became a really bad infection and he had to go in the hospital and he had to go on medications. And he just had this run of like, he's like, I swear I've been a good person. Why does this stuff keep happening? So part of the, one of the reasons the progress isn't linear is stuff happens. So he's at the point now where he is, he's doing a lot of work at home on all the new proprioception and skills that he's built on reinforcing it all the time. So uh, at home, he does things like, I, I had him get a bed of, I don't know if you've ever heard of a bed of nails. You know, there's a literal bed of nails, a wood board with nails, but they make like little plastic versions that he can use that on his feet to encourage some feeling there. He does a lot of work with a stick and with a lacrosse ball. And then we're really into trying to get more athletic conditioning. I've referred him back to physical therapy a couple of times. Again, my goal is to work people hard enough that they have new things that they're allowed to get fixed. And for him, he really, he was a runner. Um, He was an athlete. He was always strength training. Really common threads on people in our program is people that were athletic before. A lot of that can mitigate the effects of having any kind of cardiovascular issue, but also can really help you give you that drive to recover afterwards is working with him some adaptive fitness programs. So um, getting some cycling again on an adapted bike and really a lot of mindset training because he is in that zone where he's still making improvements, but they're a little bit at a time. Um, and he had very much a mindset of when I get to point X, then I want to be able to do this. And we worked a lot on being like, well, what's wrong with doing something imperfectly first? So in terms of the cycling, he's like, I really want to get my arm function and my leg function to be able to do this. And I said, well, why can't you get an adaptive bike, assuming that the budget's there, which for him it is, and do it imperfectly. And as you regain more and more function, remove more and more of the adaptations. So part of that mindset training on working with athletes is maybe not doing it 100% the way you want to, but going and doing it anyway. And he's had really good breakthroughs on... I don't want to say acceptance, acceptance isn't the best word, but in embracing the abilities he has now and challenging those abilities instead of waiting until he has the exact right set of abilities to challenge himself the way he wants to. So we do a lot of, a lot of mindset conversations and he's, he's really open to it. Again, a lot of it is it's sort of like that vestibular training with your body where you just have so many things that you're processing all the time, but sometimes it takes someone saying, how about this to make you go, oh crap, why didn't I think of that? So he's really open to doing those kinds of things now. So it's not, it's sort of like when you've trained with any general fitness client for a couple of years, is you always want to be kind of stepping back and relooking at the goals, asking the same questions you asked in the beginning. Like, like what's the biggest thing in your life that's limiting you now? And what effect can we have on that? Because it changes. You know, one of the benefits of better strength and conditioning is you find out that some of the issues you're having were, had nothing to do with your injury and had to do with your conditioning. So all of a sudden that set of parameters can change in a couple of weeks. So for him, it's more of a constant, like what's working well now, what's not working well, what kind of stiffness, strength issues do you have that we can re-put our focus on. So just like in designing any other program where you might go, okay, we're really going to focus on hinging patterns for the next eight weeks because that's going to have a carryover to everything else. You know, we're really going to focus on this particular part because that's your limiting factor and then regrouping and reevaluating after that. So this client is still working with you. At what point would he stop working with you or why have other clients stopped working with you? My philosophy in training is generally, I have clients that have trained with me for years, but if they feel like they have to, then I haven't done my job as a coach. Mm-hmm. If, I train, if I've been training clients for years, it should be because they want to, because it's helpful for them for accountability, but not because they're useless without me. Like I want my clients to learn about themselves and how to train. And if they feel confident to go and start working out their own, fantastic. I've done a great job. Some of my clients, this is a, it's a, it's a gateway program, you know, depending on the effects of their abilities, they might be able to go, okay, after physical therapy, I don't quite feel comfortable like going to the Y and working out on my own. I want a little supervision. I want a little guidance on a program. So I might work with them for, 
you know, a couple of weeks or even a couple of months. And then they might feel like, all right, I can, I can go and do that. And they'll, they might come back for some periods of time to work on programming. But a lot of times it's, it's initially set up to just be like, this is a bridge for me to be able to do other things, which is actually one of my, you know, favorite kind of situations to work on. You know, if I can kind of <laughs> release that little butterfly at the end, I feel really good about that. Some of it is just like any training relationship. Someone might stop working with you because it's not a great fit. I mean, I, I feel like as a, as a professional, a certain amount of time, you can, you can work with all kinds of personalities. But this is a really important factor when training anyone with a disability or a neurological disorder or anything else. And this is something I tell our interns about all the time. People with disabilities can be assholes. And I mean that in the nicest possible way. They are full, complete human beings with the full spectrum of emotions. And, you know, they feel everything that you do. And this is another part of sort of staying in your lane as a strength and conditioning coach and not getting caught up in being inspirational for your clients or your clients being an inspiration to you. Make sure you're always treating them like human beings. So you may have clients that might stop working with you because you're doing your best to program according to their goals, but they basically want you to just supervise them doing the things that they want to do on their own. And you might find that another trainer might be a better fit. It's really the other really important thing about not getting caught up in someone who has a disability or, or any other significant issue or not getting caught up in being um, inspirational. But you can see a lot of unhealthy relationship patterns between adaptive fitness trainers and their clients where you feel so much responsibility for their success and their progress that you feel burdened by it. So I had a client that I, I quote unquote fired recently that I had been training for four or five years. And again, like any unhealthy relationship patterns, it kind of can start from a good thing and get a little toxic where she is very good about advocating for herself. I mean, she is someone who, you know, she's had MS for 30 some years. She's very good about making sure she has every service available to her, every accessibility available to her. It's fantastic. In terms of our relationship, it got to the point where her advocating for herself was taking priority over compassion for me, what I needed for the sessions. So it was things like if I needed to reschedule, she didn't like other trainers to cover her because the things that we did I couldn't really explain in an email for coverage. So I would schedule a, a simpler session, not because the trainer couldn't do it, but because the, you know, the setting up and things would take too long and it would eat up too much for sessions. So we'd do something really simple. So she wouldn't want coverage from someone else. But yet she also would apply a little bit of guilt when I wanted to reschedule because she didn't want anyone else, but she didn't want to miss her session because her sessions were very important to her. And I tried really hard to sort of amend that relationship for a couple of months. Um, and it just got to the point where I had to bring in another coach, train them on her training and sort of pass it on because you get to a point where, you know, you, you can't, you can't see yourself as the hero for your clients. Like you're done. And that's another reason to look back at you are a strength and conditioning coach. You're not a physical therapist. You're not a psychological therapist. Some of those things can kind of bleed into your sessions with clients. But ultimately, you can't take it on yourself to be responsible for all of the client's progress. You know, you can only do what you can do and you can only be the kind of person you want to be. But there's, well, there's, a, there's a lot of things that will suck the energy out of you if you kind of continue to feed them. So for professional reasons of not getting caught up in fixing things with your clients, that includes fixing things in the rest of their life. And also we talked about in our last recording about, you know, it's really cool to see people with disabilities do tire flips and battling rope drills. And some of those are appropriate in doses. But you have to understand, ultimately, it's about everybody's quality of life involved. And if their quality of life is that they've progressed enough to go work out on their own, great. If their quality of life is they love working with you and they love the situation which you're working with you and they want to keep doing it indefinitely, then making sure that you're checking in and so you're still providing quality training and not just settling into a routine. And the other thing is making sure that your own needs are taken care of too, and that you're not so caught up in the service you're providing for others. You know, you're not serving your own needs because that's going to help you help even more people. So Lee, thank you so much for going really in depth into working with your client. What are some resources that you can give to us 
I think you know, resources are really important to help people feel more comfortable working with clients with all different kinds of abilities. There's really good stuff online. You know, there's lots of programs for people with disabilities. There's ones that are based on veterans, ones for developmental disorders. So the more things you can expose yourself to and see what other people are doing, the more you'll see it has in common with what you're already doing. So I don't have necessarily specific ones because it's going to depend on on your facility and your capabilities and what works for you. There is really good stuff out there if you look for it. The internet is wide and vast and it's there. It's just when you're talking about a marginalized group, it's not presented as often. So look at those. The biggest thing you can do is look local, you know, make connections with adaptive fitness groups. I always find the, the best gateway to working with adaptive fitness clients is to volunteer with adaptive sports organizations. Um, a lot of them will do an event like once a month at a climbing gym or they'll do, you know, a, an adaptive golf program where they just need people to be nearby offering support. So it doesn't have to be as big an investment as, you know, I'm going to go coach two times a week. Volunteering at adaptive fitness events like, you know, 5Ks that are for brain injuries, getting involved with those helps, one, helps you to meet people. But two, it's a little bit of just that exposure to different kinds of abilities makes it less foreign, less intimidating for the coach as well as for the clients. I always find that the intimidation factor is much greater on the coaches and the clients. So the clients at that point have, have met with all kinds of people and done all kinds of things. And it's really the coach's intimidation that's a bigger limiting factor. You know, assisted living groups a lot of have times have fitness programs and reaching out to physical therapists as well. It's very easy to say, like, call this person, talk to this person. And I know just from a social anxiety standpoint, but even just like, oh, are they even going to return my phone call? So I find kind of going the back way and getting yourself involved in other people's programs is a really good way to welcome them into yours in terms of building everybody's comfort. The other biggest thing, and we talked about this last time, is to understand that you already coach adaptive fitness. This is, it's, it's a scalable thing. You know, you may not have done it to the degree, but everybody has made adaptations for their clients. Everybody's had a client that has had cancer. Everybody's had a client that's had, uh, you know, a concussion. I realize I'm speaking from a place of privilege where I live in a really densely populated area, but the programs are out there if you look for them. Um, it's sort of like if you, you know, get new glasses and all of a sudden you notice everybody's glasses. If you open your mind to working with clients of all kinds of disabilities, you're actually going to see that there's a lot of stuff out there already that you can become involved with in order to um, really open up your services to more people. I've always said my, my goal in advocating for more people training adaptive fitness is so that I can do less. <laughs> I feel like everybody out there that's a, that's a reasonably good coach is capable of it. And the more services available, the more diversified it is, the more it opens up to everybody's training improving. And, you know, it's hard work. It's really gratifying. Not in that, in that way that you are, you're assuming that you're a miracle worker staying in your lane, but, um, Really opening yourself up to local services that are already there is probably the best way as opposed to sort of a distance thing via the internet. That's a good start, but kind of getting hands-on right away. Lee, thank you so much. This was really insightful and I'm glad that we had you back. Thank you very much for having me again. Thanks for tuning in to Muscles to the Masses, the podcast. To support Lee, check her out on Instagram at, at Lee Dawson and book her to speak at your next event. If you'd like to support the show, Leave us a review on iTunes, tell a friend, or buy a butt bag at musclestothemasses.com.